So I'm here with uh, Magic Juggler, as he's known on GDG, and I invited him on here to talk about Warstack, which is Hello. the... Hi. So the tentative title for your game is Warstack, and I've seen you around talking about it. I've seen you talking about wanting to create a, a different title, maybe, but what would you say is the, the basic idea behind it and why you wanted to make it? Thank you, thank you, Pullman. So, Warstack is a working title for the whole shtick of my game being taking stack or other chain systems that you normally see in collectible card games like Magic or Yu-Gi-Oh! and applying it into miniature wargaming format. Right. Originally, I used to play a lot of Warhammer, and I've experimented with other war games in the past. But ultimately, the thing that always got to me was the nature of these games and their activation structure, or their turn structure, I mean. Yeah. So, in Warhammer, War Machine, and other games, they use this concept called, I go, you go. I take my turn to do stuff with my army. You take your turn to do stuff with your army. And, sure, that's great, and all when it's your turn, and you're able to, like, pull off this either giant combo or giant alpha strike or giant my army like curb stomps and pulls this giant donkey punch on you yeah but it sure sucks when it's not your turn the game continues to get bigger you may have to wait 20 or minutes or so maybe interrupting your opponent occasionally interrupting your tindering wall because you have to make some roll to save or die but your overall interaction and involvement in the game is not there right yeah, I remember you mentioning the design of of interruptible turns, and uh, immediately I thought that would that's just the kind of thing I would expect to see over time in any war game. Like I'm surprised it's almost not in something like Warhammer already because it seems kind of common sense. Like why have these huge stretches, and then like you reward victory points at the end of a turn yet on top of that, so you kind of get this huge swing one way and then you know an attempt to swing back but it's kind of like whoever goes first has an advantage and it's there's a lot of reasons why being able to interrupt when it's not your turn would actually make sense to me i'm honestly surprised about it myself for me however i think when it comes to warhammer i think their issue is a mix of it being a publicly traded company and thus wanting to play it safe and not wanting to alienate their own fan base so there's inertia on their end, while other companies have a certain degree of wanting to play follow the leader. Now, yeah. that's not to like dis- that's not to like disparage or like criticize the entire industry. I mean, there are games out there that do experiment with different degrees of activation engines. So Infinity is perhaps like the most notable example of this using what they call the ARO system. However, even that system is known for its own Infinity is weird. Well, I've never heard Should of that, talk so why about... don't you... Okay. Infinity is made by a company called Corvus Belly. They're a, stu- they're a Spanish studio. And it's basically anime-esque future warfare between a small, between small sci-fi skirmish teams, each based on like human societies futurized and, futurized and theme park versioned in their own way. As an example, Yujing is the is futuristic Asia Pacific Rim. Uh-huh. Hawk Islam is 
the medieval Islamic golden age with sci-fi tech and so on and so forth. Right. But Infinity is Infinity is an I go you go game with reactions. If I have ten soldiers, I have ten actions, and those actions can be used by any any soldier, which does lead to a problem called those act you know cheap activations as cheerleaders for a super soldier or Rambo and cheerleader syndrome. But the catch is anytime you do an action with one of your soldiers, every enemy in line of sight to that soldier gets a what they call an automatic reaction. Huh. Which So if you just charge out into the open and try to do something crazy and You can get gunned down. Right. So you need to have your other guys lay down suppressing fire, smoke, hack enemy tag gear, etc. Tactical armor gear. Mm -hmm. Which is their equivalent of Terminator or Super Heavy armor. But Infinity is a game that works if you have a lot of terrain. And when I mean a lot of terrain, I mean Necromunda levels of terrain, XCOM levels of terrain. The map has to be covered in it. Because if you play on Planet Bowling Ball the way you would on a 40k map, or on certain 40k maps, the game falls apart fast, because... Too much line of sight, I would guess. Exactly. I have ten soldiers, you have ten soldiers. If it's my turn, you get ten reactions. I mean, assuming you don't actually kill my guys. Yeah. No, I can see why that would... You'd almost think that they would... Yeah, they'd they'd have to make like some sort of... uh... Cheap excuses oh, and mechanics ha- for how to create cover out of nothing or something like that. I mean, they do. They have smoke. They have suppression. They have other toys like that. And they've actually create, they've created a concept called link teams, where if you purchase only like a limited subset of the units that are normally available to your faction that fits into a specific theme. Oh, yeah, 40K did this in 7th edition with formations in the Koreans and such and other combi detachments where it's, you take limited units for bonuses. Right. While War Machine did the same thing with theme lists or tier lists. In Infinity, they're called sectorials. But if you are, if you take a sectorial with a limited number of units, that selection of units that would normally be available to you, you can create, you can group your units into what are called link teams. A link team requires, means that when you activate the a group of units as one, and that activating that group as a whole only results in one round of your opponent getting actions. Hmm. Does that make So you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Basically, you get uh, a safer sort of turn if you have this team that actually is designed to work together. But at the same time, by creating this system, it's almost as if Corvus Belly is backpedaling into a more 40k-ish form of I go, you go. I activate my squad of five troopers rather than you getting five times the number of models in line of sight, it's one times the number of models in line of sight worth of reactions. Yeah. And so what you're doing is obviously trying to build the uh, activation straight into the core mechanic of the entire game and build the game around that idea. Exactly. So, aside from I Go, You Go games, the other notable paradigm is alternating activation. I do everything with one unit, you do everything with one unit, and we alt- we each alternate performing actions with one unit until both of our armies have, like, done, have 
done everything, and then that's the turn. In other words, it's an interleaving of actions and minimizing the downtime, so I don't have as much time to, like, swipe left. Right. And that sounds like it would be interesting but disorganized in a way that might be unappealing. Well, that's one of the issues. The whole idea that if you're only activating one unit at a time, you can't pull off these elaborate combos that you're totally able to pull off in Yugo. And at the same time, not all activations are created equal. If one person has an army of elite troops and maybe only five squads or four squads, mm-hmm. and the other person is running a Somali militia or some other force of irregulars, but has 20-something troops, then what has happened in the past... Actually, I should use Malifo as a real-life example of this. So Malifo is a skirmish game. Very loosely based on Mordheim, by Veerd, is it Weird or Veerd? W-I-R-D, miniatures. Okay. Think of it as the Weird West, Ghost Punk, create your crew and go and skirmish. But Malifaux has a lot of little cutesy shticks to it. For one, it doesn't use dice. Rather, each person has a deck of cards with numbers. And that card, those are your probability pool. Hmm. But... I mean, it's whole keeping with the whole Western poker theme, you know. Oh, okay. You're quick or you're dead. Right. But the main thing is Malifaux is I activate one unit and do everything with it. You activate one unit and do everything with it. And we rinse and repeat until both of our crews have acted. There's a character that's available called Hamlin, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And his main special ability is whenever... Models die, you know, in his aura of... His aura doesn't actually kill stuff, but when models die in his aura, they turn into rats that he controls. And the rats themselves suck in melee. Like, they suck statistically. They're just going to die. But people still take Hamlet, and the reason for that is that activating and doing stuff with a rat is one activation. And... So people don't actually take Hamlet to kill stuff. They take him so you can get a bunch of free actions that you can use to dick around and waste your opponent's turn and go, okay, I move a rat, you have to move a unit. I move a rat, you have to u- move a unit. Oh, wow. You've done all your moves. Okay, now I'm going to have the what, my real army move and, like, get the drop on you. Man, that's no offense to people who play war games, but it seems like the entire hobby is built around abusing the hell out of every rule. I mean, yes, that does make sense. Yes and no. I mean, <laughs> people play them for lots of different reasons. Right, right, right. Like, uh, but, I mean, you, you've you pointed out in the past on GDG, which people love when you do, um, the sort of hilarious ways that rules can be abused if they're not exactly worded correctly. And I thought I mean, that's... That's what you need. You need players who are really sharp and paying attention to uh, the, comp- the competitive. What the game right? Yeah. What the game devs need are comp- are good technical writers, and for some reason or another, Games Workshop has been increasingly lax in that. Like, I like to criticize Privateer Press for having a. I mean, I like to criticize Privateer Press, or not even Privateer Press, but War Machine for being a quote unquote not your dudes sort of game. And that's another concept that we can get to later. But for all their flaws or for all the things I disagree with on War Machine, one thing I can say is their game 
is very non-ambiguous. You read the rules, you understand what they mean. Whereas in Warhammer, you can play, you can have two different games going on, and the rules may end up being interpreted completely differently. Yeah, that just sounds like amateur hour. I mean, you would think that somebody who's been around as long as as a workshop or a games workshop would have figured out by now the the correct way to phrase things and how to you know intermingle their their uh, technical mechanics. Or the fact that people by nature will like abuse ambiguity. People by nature power game. This may be more true, and and this is especially true in versus games where there's a win condition. Yeah. I mean, in a role-playing game, you can sure you may have Godzilla or Pun Pun or other noted game breakers, but they're not the point of the game. You're not. It's a party cooperating with the game master to tell a story, or maybe cooperating against the game master to destroy his magical realm. Right. But it's not like it's not player one, player two. There can only be one winner. Right. So you'd expect much more ruthless interpretation of the rules when. The rules are the only thing that separates one guy from dominating another one. You need to have, you know, clear language. And uh, would you? Oh, spe- speaking of that, so there were other. There are notable 40k terms. There's Nova. There's the Las Vegas Open. There's Adepticon, DocaCon, Warzone Atlanta, Atlanta Tome. You know. And a surprising number of the tournaments have either had disqualifications due to an honest mistake in like understanding how the rules work, because for some weird reason the tournaments are bad at like list checking for you know for illegalities. Oh. Or what happened this year at the Las Vegas Open was this is a there in on the top four tables there were three players there Alex Fennell, Tony Grappando. And Nick Nanavati. In the semifinals, Tony was known for slow playing with his, he got the first turn, took his turn to basically take intentionally a much longer turn than normal. Oh, that's another flaw with a lot of games. Timing. That's another topic. Yeah. Should you use chess clocks or not? So he took forever for his turn, rushed his opponent on his turn, like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Oh, geez. His opponent, his opponent made like deployed the unit from reserves. His then Tony's all. Oh, you dropped the unit from reserves. That technically ends your movement phase. That you can't move the rest of your army. Neener, neener, neener. <laughs> and is that true? It was no. This is true. Like Mark Merrill, like the head of Riot Games, Mr. League of Legends, was also at that tournament. Also on his Twitter, he's like, "What the hell, Tony? You know, what the hell, Tony? He was going to like." Donate $5,000. $5,000 was the main prize for the tournament as a consolation to Alex for handling the whole thing as a good sport. Like, eh, whatever, man. Wow. And Alex is like, okay, I'll give it to charity. He's like, thanks for the money. I'll give it to, you know, a children's hospital charity. Games Workshop then comes in and says, wow, class act. We'll match the donation. Huh. So that was the, that was the semifinal. And so, (laughs) In the final, which was Nick versus Tony, Tony having advanced from, you know, winning by, like, a rule lawyering technicality, Tony had his unit, he was going to go and he was going to kick Nick's ass, but then Nick is like, well, actually, you were supposed to use this power in this phase, and even though you were moving as if to intentionally do this, and therefore this unit has to stand out there in the open and get shot, 
this is revenge rule lawyering. Neener, neener. Wow. Yeah. So the guys who, so, the guys who end up getting to the top and winning these things are the ones who know the ins and outs of these, like, ambiguous systems that <laughs> they just end up screwing each other over with rules lawyering instead of that great strategy like, you'd want to see on, like, a replay or something. Exactly. It's like, I want to play the fucking game. I want to play, I want to win because I'm a better strategist, not because I had a better list, not because I won the coin toss to go first. Well, I know it's a D6 and that there's a one in six chance that even if I go first, you get to go first instead. But we'll just say it's like a coin toss to see who gets to, like, who gets the ball first for all we know. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a pretty great example of why technical writing would be you'd think a lot more heavily emphasized because like they do put on these tournaments and even though I don't think they're very widely known, certainly in the wargaming community, they've got to be some of the highlights of the year. Yeah, you would think, but at the same time, the way I view it, if you create a game, Oh yeah. That's, I think the other thing that I think games workshop has a problem with, like some people, and this is actually, a, this is a controversial opinion. People may sh- disagree with me on this. But ever since Age of Sigmar and the General's Handbook, and with the introduction of 8th edition, they've been emphasizing a motto called three ways to play. Like, when I mean by three ways to play is you have the core rules, which are what they call matched play. It's like you have these many points, you only have these rules, etc. They have what they call narrative play. And I'm putting narrative in quotes because it's not like they've created rules for campaigns or unusual conditions. I mean unusual conditions or characters leveling up or anything like that. What they've done instead is they've created a system called power levels. And I know what you're thinking. What does the scouter say and all that? (laughs) But what I'm, what they mean by power levels is they've actually decided to take the normal point built system they use for armies and abstract it into. So instead of saying, and I've actually seen this, I've actually looked into it because I'm, I'm a huge fan of the idea of Warhammer. I don't have the money or the time or anything to actually play it, but the the idea of the the power level thing I actually thought was interesting because it, it felt like a company really trying to streamline something that could be intimidating for new players. And I thought as somebody who someday would theoretically like to get into Warhammer, it would be like this broad sort of simplified version that obviously isn't perfectly balanced. It doesn't have this sort of Fine it's detail. easy to abuse. But then, yeah, I'm kind of curious what you think of that, because to me, it's just like, ah, oh, whatever, maybe it's imbalanced, maybe not, but, you know, it's just a game, and I'll just have fun with whatever. But if you were going to get really competitive, and you invest all this money, and you make your models, you know, you really take it seriously, why would you play like that? It's it, I can see that it would probably be open to abuse. Well, I mean, the way I view it is... You shouldn't have to create a game where it's... I mean, the point values versus power levels won't necessarily determine whether the game is competitive or not. That's what the core mechanics are for. The turn structure, the player interaction, making sure there's not extreme swing in, like, dice that turn the game into, like, a 50-50 dick punch. (laughs) Right. And so calling one of them matched play versus the other narrative play just feels kinky. Like, it feels... And then, of course, there's open play, which is there's no points. Bring whatever models you want, and let's have a throwdown and let him go get a pint at the pub. <laughs> but the way I view it, and 40K is perhaps the biggest example of casual versus competitive divide and a divided fan base, 
is that if a game has bad rules at a competitive level, they will always trickle down to like the casual and the LGS scene. What's the what do you like, mean by LGS scene? Local game store. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, as an example, the, one of the army. Have you have you read Playing to Win by Sorlin, by the way? No, uh, somebody was recommending it the other day, but I haven't actually read it. I mean, it's online for free. It Playing to Win is pretty much is pretty much the main book on competitive game theory, and by David Sorlin. He's a very controversial guy. A lot of people hate him, but mostly because he's one of the earliest noted example, noted sources of the term scrub. <laughs> okay, I can see why he'd be hated. <laughs> yep. Anyway, so Sterling actually talks about what should a tournament be? What are the terms of victory? Is cheating allowed in a tournament? And first of all, cheating should not be involved. The tournament should have clear you know, clear win conditions and clear rules. I should not be able to win a Street Fighter tournament by physically punching my opponent. I mean, my real-life opponent, not yeah, the person... The guy standing next to you with the controller. Yeah. I can't, like, win... I can't win a Street Fighter tournament by slamming his face into the arcade. <laughs> right. These are good rules and to have. Because, sure, it might technically win you the game, but... It's not within the parameters of the operation. I would not be able to win a 40k tournament by like lighting my opponent's miniatures on fire. Yeah, you've got to have a code of conduct, some sportsmanship, some, uh, you know, preferably I would assume a referee that can make a judgment call on these things, if nothing else. I mean, they do have tournament organizers, but the question is, are they truly impartial, or in some cases, are they truly trustable? Magic, like, you've heard about the controversy, what happened with MTG and their tournament judges, like, a few months ago, right? Oh, yeah, there was a whole thing about that. I I didn't look into it very much, but it was almost bordering it's on... Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> that was... Yeah, that's a heavy topic. But You, you can get into it if you I want. Actually... I, I find that interesting, okay. too. But... The reason I brought up Serlin is because one of the other things he talked about is... Which characters should be banned in tournaments? Like, ideally a competitive game will allow every character to be used and have equal chances of winning, assuming players have equal skill level. Right. There's, which, I mean, there's this idea that certain, that in theory you can balance a game by making some characters really awesome but really difficult to use, and other characters really easy to use but with a lower skill ceiling, but I never really was a fan of that. Anyway. When he talks about, like, which characters get banned from tournaments, he says usually Akuma is the first one banned from tournaments because Akuma is usually just playing better than everyone else. Right. And a more controversial choice to get banned from tournaments is Old Saget. Old Saget is not a top-tier character, is not Akuma levels of good. In fact, many characters can beat Old Saget. However, Old Saget has a moveset and playstyle that can hard-counter at least four other otherwise viable characters. Yeah, and isn't and so, wouldn't he wouldn't he be a very easy player to play a uh, easy character to play well also? I mean In he, theory, yes. He's like a spoiler. Like if you have old Saget, then at least four other characters who would otherwise be viable for tournaments are no longer viable. The whole rock, paper, scissors dilemma, where everyone else is a pair of scissors or a rock. Oh right. And, and so, so this this gets to this Serlin's uh, point about 
how to organize an event, or is this does this go deeper into actual game design philosophy itself? I'd say it's a mix of it's a mix of both. In this case, when he says like who gets banned from a tournament, like which characters get banned, it like touches on like an underlying point about what is balance. Right, that's true. And that is oh, that is another con. So anyway. I've been like sort of rambling on about like all these other games and all these other design theories and we're like, gonna tie why... it all back into why your game is better, I'm assuming. Hopefully. <laughs> we'll get there. So alright. So actually the reason I I originally did not design Warstack as a game to have a stack based interaction system. Originally I looked at previous editions of Warhammer as well as other games, Civilization, XCOM, etc. And I came to the decision that, well, it wasn't really a conclusion. I mean, I didn't come to the... It, it was a fairly obvious conclusion anyway, but one of the biggest issues with 40K and other such games is whoever gets the drop on their opponent has a tremendous advantage over their opponent. Yeah. Like, whether it's going first as what's happened in the most recent edition of 40k, or whether it's being able to hide the majority of your forces, quote-unquote, in reserve, off the table, hidden in the warp, hidden in orbital space, etc., mass para drop in, and go, surprise! Yeah, I've actually... I love watching people play uh, real games of, of Warhammer online, especially when, you know, when they're They've got a lot of banter, and they're sort of in a good spirit about it and stuff like that. But I've noticed that sort of mentality of uh, hiding everything and then just dropping it all at once or, you know, waiting for your opponent to move away from a certain area so that you can sneak it in behind there. And, and, and it, like, cap their objective, like rocket tag, basically. Yeah, and it seems like, well, on one hand, that thematically, I'm, I'm a pretty thematic guy, more than a, a competitive person. It feels wrong to me to sort of have this... Um, you win the game because you snuck up from behind and captured this objective and that kind of thing. But from a game balance point of view, I assume that's sort of a a necessary evil almost. Like a but... counter. I mean, War Machine does that too. Like, you can be winning the game and slowly attritioning your opponent down and having control of scenario points. But if your opponent is able to kill your leader, that's an instant win condition. Okay, yeah. So you've got at least the one. Whole, you're, you're always worried about at least one thing that could tw- uh, flip go the match. Wrong. Yeah. Whereas in 40k, especially, there's this tendency to for an early advantage to snowball and fast. Right. Yeah, I've I've seen that too. Um, and then presumably your war stack idea, uh, if I understand it correctly, is that every action you make has to basically already take into consideration the reactions that your enemy could have to that. Exactly. That's the whole point. So originally when I was like designing my homebrew, it was originally an idea to fix the previous edition of 40K. So one of the issues that I had with 6th and 7th and 8th is the way they handle Overwatch, handle covering fire slash Overwatch. Right. So I have a squad in... Second, I mean, if you've ever played XCOM, you know, like, you can move, you can, like, place your guy into Overwatch. If an enemy unit in their turn moves in line of sight, you get to shoot and you're Overwatch in. That's XCOM. Yeah, if you're talking about the old original, like, PC game, that's, like, pretty much my favorite. Time units. 
It's my. It's a classic. Yeah, it's my favorite video game of all time. I think. Are you there? Yeah, I mean, XCOM, XCOM Apocalypse, Warhammer 40k Chaos Gate. Those are the things that got me into this sort of into war gaming. Oh, Chaos Gate was the shit. I know, Brother Ape Mantis. Man, and, and I mean, then the, the map editor on there is like you could just phenomenal generate entire levels and then create objectives that were so interesting. I consider it to be one of the high watermarks of all video games, and I don't know why there's not been something like that since. Well, the thing also is Chaos Gate is based on second edition 40K, which a lot of people who started like later don't know it was a dramatically different game. It wasn't Rogue Trader levels of crazy, and it was, in fact, it was the first game that truly emphasized the fact that 40K is a war game and not just strictly an RPG. I mean... Rogue Trader even required a game master. Huh. But second edition was a far smaller scale than current 40k. And the way 40, second edition 40k did Overwatch was I have a squad. That squad will forfeit moving and shooting in its own turn. In the opponent's turn, I can interrupt their turn whenever they're making a move. Right. You reserve Original- your, your action basically to take it because you're setting to up an basically ambush. shoot it in their turn. Exactly. Or setting up covering support. For instance, I can overwatch in my turn. Since overwatch is at the start of the turn before all movement, if my opponent enters overwatch but is in line of sight of one of my guys that I put in overwatch, I can shoot that unit that entered overwatch first. And then that unit would have to take a leadership check or they would no longer be in overwatch because they're being suppressed. See, I just assumed that Chaos Gate had its own rule set. I didn't know that that was actually taken from the second edition. It, it was heavily based off of it. It's not like a literal adaptation. I mean, second edition still used move, psychic, shoot, and assault phases. Well, yeah, it you didn't have, have action. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't have the little Brainy time action. units and stuff. Right. But, yeah, second edition Overwatch was forfeit my turn in order to take an action in your turn. Yeah, I love that. Whereas in eighth edition, it's are you trying to charge me in melee? I get a free round of shooting, but I only hit on sixes because of balance. Yeah, like, I don't, you're suddenly, you become, well, I guess the idea of being someone rushing you and you having to react is sort I mean, of an explanation for why you'd miss so much. But at the same time, what about that ambush where you're waiting for them to come at you? And it, the game doesn't really emphasize that, doesn't really have any rules to model that. Yeah, I, I mean, other than the just... whole popping up from reserves. It's kind of, yeah. So what about your system but, then? How does that play out as far as like a, a game flow, a situation you would play out where somebody wants to do, you know, set up an ambush and the other guy is like, well, I know he's in ambush, but I'm still going to rush in because I have this counter strategy already in mind. And that kind of, I imagine it becomes a lot more, I know what you know, what I know you're going to do kind of thing. Well, I actually had to make a kind of compromise in that system for the purposes of keeping it simple. Basically... A unit has two actions a turn. I decided on two actions because it's actually easier to keep track of how many actions a unit has taken that way. Right. Like, you, there are two color, I use two color poker chips. Yellow side up on one side, red side on the other. And so, if a unit has taken one action, I put a, I put the chip yellow side up next to it. And if the unit has taken two actions, I flip it over to red. Okay. So green, you know, so the unit's green, yellow, red. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a stoplight yeah. configuration. It's, like I said, it's surprisingly 
it's simple from a bookkeeping perspective. Having more granular action points really won't work in the scope of these types of games. Right, no. But as far as the the psychology of how it plays out, it would still be, it still get pretty advanced so, pretty quickly, I would think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to, like, and it's actually kind of funny. So the reason I actually, so my original test with seventh, with trying to fix seventh edition, or at least fix like the whole drop in from reserves, you know, the whole, whole, all my guys off the table to drop in and like, and, and you know, surprise donkey punch you. Yeah. Was to allow units rather than like skipping both their movement and their shooting in order to like interrupt the opponent anytime was forfeit my shooting in my turn. I could still move in order to interrupt my opponent if my opponent tried to shoot me, shoot that unit, or a unit within six inches of it. So it was Overwatch based on intent to attack rather than Overwatch based on entering line of sight. Oh, I see. So the reason I did that is because there were certain... was that since second edition also had a closest model first casualty removal system and a unit moved as a whole, it did lead to certain FAQ inconsistencies on which models get removed first if the unit is being shot in the middle of its movement. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really... So I decided I really did not want to mess with that sort of area, you know, scenario that has lots of room for disagreement or ambiguity. And so I decided, keep Overwatch separate from movement, make it so only intent to actually attack will trigger it. So, but theoretically then, somebody would avoid Overwatch by... Ducking running, from cover to cover. By running somewhere, yeah, running from cover to cover or running there and just standing there, which is not a very strategic decision. It's so, not a great, it's not a great strategic decision, but it is an option. And, I mean, it works in a way. Like, the idea was workable in theory, but it still had its own issues. For example, you could create like a giant blob of 50 something guardsmen and in advance it in a conca line, keeping like a small chain of models near your deployment zone, so they're in range, you know, so they're, the unit is technically within six inches of your artillery, so that whenever anyone wants to attack your blob, that could, the artillery could, like, cover for them, which, <laughs> I mean, it works. Right. But then it doesn't, like, allow for counter-battery fire or other ways to stop him. So then that's where I came up with the idea, why not try creating a stack system instead? The other reason I did that is since... Although the initial homebrew was quick and dirty and simple, there were many other types of, you know, unique, special, snowflake abilities in 40k that technically weren't shooting, psychic, or melee attacks. I mean, you had bomb dropping, vector strikes, pop, you know, like, terror from the deep, self-destruction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, like, that system really wouldn't have worked because it's like, what is an attack? What's not an attack? Yeah, you have to be pretty clear on those things. But I, I'm I'm guessing that most of the people who are listening to this are would love to hear a, an example of how this war stack would play out. Can you just like give some different examples of what it would actually look like to play with this system and how things would activate and why that's such a, a smart way to handle it? Sure. So I have my army. You have your army. And... If you play 40k, there's a concept called command points, which is if you build your army in a certain way, which some people cynically say if you spam a lot of cheap 
troops from a cheap army in order to like farm these command points for like units that from elite armies that have more elite stratagems. Anyway, command points are non-regenerating unless you have like certain D6s that let you slowly like retain them. And they're basically like a countdown mana bomb, which thematically that weirded me out. It's actually weirded me out for a really long time. Like you can order your troops to run faster than their transport. And I don't know about you, but even with the worst drill sergeant or even with the worst, bo- you know, boss, it's not, you're not going to like suddenly like run faster than a tank <laughs> or in, or in the case I used in GDG, run faster than a supersonic aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, I love those examples you gave of how these, these rules end up warping and uh, creating anomalies. Bizarre situations like anti-aircraft flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah, but let, let's get back to this this war stack idea of how this solves the problem. All right. So my system is you have two actions a turn when you make when you, for each unit gets two period when you act, you can activate a unit and either do one or both of its actions and if you if an action is offensive in nature, for instance, I cast a debuff spell. I shoot at one of your units, I attempt to charge one of your units, etc. You then your opponent gets the option to interrupt. That means choosing one unit to make one action. And the reason I brought up command points is that rather than them being used to activate all these special powers and plus one abilities, is they actually help you manipulate the turn order. Normally the game is I activate one unit, you activate one unit. But if you want to activate two units in a row, you can spend a command point to a strategy point. I'm getting 40k mixed up in my war stack. <laughs> you can spend one strategy point to activate a second unit. You can spend another two strategy points to activate a third unit, another three to activate a fourth unit. So activating four units in a row would cost six strategy points. And it slowly scales upwards like that. Right. Now, the reason I brought up the interrupts, interrupts, like I said, one unit takes one action. And if that action is to make an offense, if that action is offensive, like the interrupt, then that can also be interrupted in turn, where you take one action with one unit. And if that's offensive in nature, your opponent can do that, etc., etc., until both of you run out of strategy points. Because the more interrupts you keep on putting, the more units you have acting in this chain of interrupts, the more strategy points it will keep costing to add like new units to this stack. Right. So and when I say, well, two two things I want to mention. One is that for people who aren't familiar with with war games, when you're talking about units, you're not talking about individual models. You're talking about a unit being Squats. a group, a squad. And the other Correct. thing would be that um, um, this would be like me running in. Obviously, I just want to run in and shoot your guys. When I give my when I say that this is what I want to do, I declare it. I have to Correct. put down a a token of some kind, a physical token on the table. Next to your unit and next to my unit. Right. Like a target zero and a one. Oh, okay. And then the and, and then you would go say, Well, okay, oh, yeah? if you want to shoot me I, then I'm gonna have this then I'm gonna have this unit like shoot you first. Or I'm gonna have this unit like I'm going to have this unit cast Imperial Stormtrooper no Jutsu on you so you can't hit me. 
Right, but you literally using, would place your token, your counter token, on top of on mine. My, now, I would place my counter token on top of mine. So you have a one. My initial target has a z- The unit you initially targeted has like a zero or like a crosshairs next to it. You have a one next to your unit. I have a two next to the unit I'm interrupting with. Oh, I see. And then do you count down from, therefore, the the highest exactly. number to the lowest number? Right. With the highest number has to attack has to resolve against the unit beneath it. That's very interesting. So like I said, it's like I said, that's why I call it a stack. Like it's magic like and so if you wanted to like stop me, like say cast like a nullify magic or so, you would place the three next to one of your, you know, anti wizards. But then I could have a sniper, I would place a four next to that and have this the sniper would shoot your three if your three survives, you would cast Nullify Magic on my number two. If my number two survives, you know, if my number, if you failed, you know, like to ca- Nullify my magic or my number two, then my number two would attempt to like cast this spell on your number one. If your number one was still able to shoot, it would shoot my number zero. And each time you're like taking off the counter and replacing it with an action taken token. That's, that is such a, um, elegant way of, Having something that you can still imagine, uh, perfectly as a, as a string of like strategies in a war. It's somewhat chaotic. It's definitely not predictable how somebody's going to react. Like it's not like there's just an obvious, well, this unit takes reactions when this happens. So you still have a lot of freedom of choice. And I like the That's fact the that point. when, when you, when you picture it playing out, because like I said, I'm, I like the thematic element of these things. You do think, well, okay. You would have all of these guys sort of kick into gear when, when the shit hits the fan and when this guy, when you want to make an attack, everybody sort of springs into action to try to save the target from being destroyed. And it ends up being this cascading effect of potentially escalating, but it sounds like you have to spend these strategy points to do it. So there is exactly. a, a material, there's sort of a, uh, a res- resource material cost. cost to it. Yeah. You have to prioritize what is worth spending those points Saving. on. Exactly. And of course, there are other, like, there are other additions to this, to the system as well. For instance, say you wanted to shoot my unit, you advanced and you shot, wanted to shoot my unit. I would, since I can choose any action, any single action that would normally be available to, as part of an activation, I could instead of like doing the whole casting Stormtrooper mad shooting no jutsu on you. I could instead drive a tank in the middle to block line of sight <laughs> from your guy, you know, from your unit to my unit. So if that was the case, then there's a clause in my target in my stack system that if a unit is unable to like resolve its action against like an opposing unit due to like another enemy unit being the root cause, and I intentionally make that very open. Then you're allowed to actually retarget that unit and the unit that's responsible for not being able to target your initial unit. Okay. In other so words, they have to become the sacrifice you want to shoot almost. My, exactly. So you want to shoot my infantry squad. I drive my tank in the middle. You can then your infantry squad automatically retargets that unit instead, the tank instead. Huh. Yeah. Again, that makes, that makes and perfect that, sense. And with your token system, it sounds like it wouldn't be that hard to rearrange it if you had to move the tokens. Mm-hmm. Or, 
Or exactly. would you not even bother moving them because you just look at what's no, you, causing the interruption? The thing is, you're not actually even moving the tokens in this case. It's like you're just simply resolving the attack against the blocker. The yeah. reason I'm actually doing that is because, you know, since you could, like, move a blocker to block line of sight to a unit that's already interrupting for another unit, that other unit still has to act on the stack. Right, yeah, exactly. So you can't move them around and shift something from underneath the stack, otherwise it would just be Otherwise a... the whole order would fall apart. That said, you can also spend command points when it's right before you immediately act on the stack to do two different things. The first is you can spend a, you can spend a strategy point to stand down. When you stand down, that means you don't actually take an action and you don't, you know, like, you know, meaning you still keep your action point. The reason you might want to do this would be, for instance, say you wanted to shoot my unit with your infantry squad, but I drove a tank full of, ex- you know, full of explosives right in front. Yeah. You get where I'm going with this. And it's like, if you wanted, you would have to shoot my tank because it's retarget, my vehicle because it's retargeted. Like, right, we'll say it's a truck just, full of don't. Yeah, like if you, you, obviously you, your guys would change their mind about making that shot it's suddenly. Like, it's like, explosive, it's like IED, don't shoot. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, I mean, it's pretty much a necessary rule if you're gonna have something that can be horribly abused otherwise. I mean, you, um, mm-hmm. it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I'm curious how long or what methods you took to actually reaching this. Is it something you just slowly think about as you're playing other war games and you're, you know, you're, you're just piecing together what you would like instead, or did you have a specific sort of design, uh, you know, approach from a theoretical it's like I was level? Piecing, I was like piecing it together step by step. Like I said, I used the earlier example of trying to make 40k use a modified Overwatch system. Right. And then I sort of built from there. But like all this, the, the tokens and the stacking idea itself is pretty novel. It is. I mean, it's, I don't think I've seen any other war games like do something like that. I think the only thing that's similar might be Code Zero, which I still see is still in development. I know other systems like Saga or Xenotactics use fatigue systems instead where you can like keep on pushing your units to do more actions, but it makes them more tired. But the thing is, I didn't want to do a system where activations aren't randomized in nature. No, this sounds like it's it's deeply, deeply strategic, and and especially with the cost of uh, strategy points, it would be something you continually have to, escalating. I'm wor- I'm wondering if you if you wanted to do the whole uh, escalating conflict thing, and you spend strategy points to add something to this order or to this stack, uh, and then your guys stand down, does it refund the strategy point? That's a good question. I need to think that over. I mean, at the moment, it doesn't. I might tweak it accordingly. But I mean, there'd be pros and cons to doing that. I mean, theoretically, people would get more tricky into trying to bait things and waste strategy points. I kind of like. I mean, I do like the idea of making your opponent, like, second-guess themselves or being able... I think... A good trailer for my game would be as if Zinch himself designed it. But then, you know, the copyrights would be involved. And I'm like, actually, I think a better term, Xanatos Gambit Pileup or Batman Gambit Pileup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm glad that I understand that reference because it's actually a pretty good one. Um, Because 
Or all according to plan, all according to plan. Oh yeah, he's falling just into my plan. Wait, he moved the thing in the way? Not his plan, not his plans. Yeah, exactly. There's, I imagine, um, well, I don't know. At this rate, we have so many things we want to talk about. I don't know if we can get into all the different factions and the actual sort of like pitch as to who you're playing as and what the real like meat of the the lore and the characters and stuff would be here. But... I'm still working on that. I'm like I said, I'm still working on that myself. So it's okay. Oh, okay. So you've got you're definitely focused on getting the the core mechanics all figured out first. Down to pat. And then yeah. are, are you going to design? factions and stuff like that around the mechanics to try to highlight different aspects of it and balance it that way? I, have a f- I mean, I do have a few, like, working concepts. Like, tentatively, the originally, like, I was wanting to do it as a sci-fi game, but then I realized I also have a lot of nostalgia for old rank-and-file workings. Your Warhammer fantasies, your chainmails, your conference, etc. I would have... And- I would just I think strongly suggest that you immediately do the Warhammer thing, have a fantasy and a sci-fi at the same time, because I, I would love to see both. It sounds like your system would have so much potential for the ranged cover-based uh, sort of high-technology stuff or sort of this brutal, uh, you know, front-line... Ancients warfare, Pylum and Gladius and Scutum and forming Testudo. Yeah. But that's Actually, just a suggestion. I know. Well, I think the fantasy part is easier to focus on because one of the reasons and one of the things I've been asked in the past is, like, how is this actually happening from a narrative perspective? And I think my answer at the time was sort of a cop-out, but I think it actually works well. Each turn represents about a minute or a few minutes, and the whole interrupting is not literally taking turns so much as the vagaries and uncertainty of warfare or incoherent command leading to certain units just drop, you know, being able to, like, win the initiative based on the bidding. Right. Literally, command points or strategy points in this case do not represent your ability to, like, throw down these mana bombs to run super fast. They just represent how coordinated your army is as a whole, how efficiently units act in concert with one another. Yeah. It's... uh... It's sort of a coherency factor. Yeah. Oh, incidentally, there's another one other thing you can do on the stack I forgot to mention. Aside from like being able to spend strategy points to stand down. And the other option you have is what I call fake out. And what I mean by that is say for instance, you have I attack your unit attacks my unit. I drive a tank in the middle. Rather than trying to shoot my tank or stand down. If you have another unit of yours that has line of sight to my infantry that was previously being blocked off by my tank, but no longer is because I moved my tank to block off the other unit, you could spend a command, you could spend a strategy point to have, to make it so that other unit is doing the attack instead. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you could kind of create, uh, flanking and, and these sort of like... Bait and flank. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Man, I, I would love to see this game being played. I can't wait to, you know, I hope that if you do get it to a point where you're you're able to play test it, that I can somehow see this being played. Uh, which brings Are you me on Tabletop Simulator? On, on Tabletop Simulator? Yeah, that's how I've been, like, doing my proof of concept, aside from, like, working with what I do have left over from my 40K minis. Man, that's actually really smart. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I mean, 
TTS works really well for the testing just because I'm still learning the intricacies of it, but you can, for instance, you can like create stateful objects with it. Like I can create a token that if I right click it goes from yellow to red. Huh. I can track dice. I can otherwise make sure everything like roughly works from a mechanical perspective and then work from balancing from there. And then eventually let's say that, you know, by the end of this year or however, however long it takes, you have what you're pretty confident is good mechanics and good story, uh, good factions and stuff like that. How does this translate into an actual product or, a, you know, what kind of models do you see yourself trying to use or suggest people buy if you want to kind of just allow people to use their own or how does that work? I honestly haven't thought about the end game as a finished product yet. That's something I'll hit that milestone when I hit that milestone, I suppose. I've you're, been taking this one step at a time. You're going to have to I have, think, like, on the podcast, I'll have to have on some guy that, like, specializes in making miniatures or something. And I'll you can hook up with somebody else and he'll handle that part of it or something like that. I, uh, that's how I think it should play out, hopefully. Yeah, I think that would make sense. I mean, personally, I'm probably more like in the bring your own miniatures, like Count says. I'm not, you must play with official magic juggler tea trade markets maximus products. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause that's always a, a sort of a weird a thing you have to keep chasing is the, um, copyrights and yeah. all of that stuff. That sounds like a nightmare. Like, there is one game I still want to try out that I haven't had the chance to yet called This Is Not a Test. And This Is Not a Test is basically Mordheim or Necromunda if it were a fall, if it were like a set in a fallout backdrop. Right. Post apocalyptic, post nuclear survival skirmishing. Sounds and, pretty cool. I mean, and from what I read, I read an interview with one of his interviews and what he did for his game was he just simply contacted all the third-party miniatures, you know, your hassle. I don't think he did hassle-free or Reaper, but many of the other smaller ones, and said, hey, I'm making this game. I see you have miniatures. You want to collaborate? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great if you could get somebody else to handle that side of things, like uh, sort of the artistic um, manufacturing and sort of a, a way to... Business. Yeah, put that side together, because it sounds like you've got a really great system that's going, but... You know, it's hard enough to, like, you know, as somebody who's working on, like, a tabletop RPG where everything can be imagination land and and just abstract, it's hard enough just to get even a rule book together that looks decent and, you know, the basics. Publishing, it's like, I mean, learning, like, editing tools, learning how to, like, format stuff so it doesn't look like a giant text dump. Yeah. I mean, that's hard enough. And then not only that, but then trying to do any sort of models or, like, even creating all the separate tokens and and, you know, artifacts that you need to have in order to play the game. Um, I would really hope that this wouldn't sort of suffer in the Determined. last legs when everything else is really solid. No, I agree. I really hope that I'm able to make this work, that I'm able to actually pull this off. Because yeah. if I do, I'll be happy. I'll know that, like, I've made, like, I've made something original. Even if the originality was, like, co-opting a mechanic from collectible card games into miniature format... Well, I mean, that's, I mean, what the hell is innovation except adapting and, and refining and, you know, applying in a different, unique way? There's, True. There's no ideas that come out of nowhere. I mean, it's all, it's all adaptation and, and, uh, application. So, but I mean, yeah. Uh, one, one of the, one of the things I did want to talk about, and, and you brought this up 
before uh, we started recording was the idea of RPG design versus war game design and kind of a philosophical difference between those two. And I was curious what you meant by that. Well, it's kind of funny because, like, RPGs and war games are more related than they think. Like, supposedly the supposedly D&D was a one-off made from, was modified from a one-off, like, infiltrate the castle scenario made for Chainmail. While, as I mentioned earlier, Rogue Trader was an earlier was an earlier game that wasn't sure whether it was a war game or an RPG, and in fact required a game master to referee slash adjudicate disputes. Third edition Warhammer Fantasy had a similar system too. But to answer your question, what I think the main difference between an RPG and a war game is a war game just has a win condition, whereas the is and is by nature competitive, whereas the RPG by nature is more collaborative. I mean, sure, you may have a game like Paranoia, where your goal is to ultimately backstab your teammates, but <laughs> yeah, you, you've got you've got sort of win conditions or whatever. But I know what you mean. I mean, on the on the basic level, I think that's what almost everybody would say is that the the RPG is this sort of continual shared cooperative experience, whereas a war game is is pretty deeply rooted in the Two idea of center, I want to crush leaves. your guys and I'm going to you know do whatever it takes to win. Which, I mean, I think the issue with the war game is ideally, I mean, the certain war games, I mean, it depends also whether it's like a hex encounter game, like an old Avalon Hill game, or whether it's a miniature game as well. Because the collectible ones usually mean people like take the time either to paint I assume they take the time to paint. I know some people, I know there's like third party painting commission services, which I mean, if you're like a serviceman or otherwise deployed and unable to like do it yourself, that makes sense. But the idea of like the whole, I'm a tournament player, therefore I don't have the time to do the painting myself. I need to chase the meta and like this unit. <laughs> oh wait, this unit that I like got sent off to this third party studio to get painted has now been nerfed to uselessness. I wasted my money and time. I, yeah. I'm so unfamiliar with the scene that I didn't know that was a thing, but that is hilarious yeah. that there It is people. actually kind of a thing. Like, the idea of, like... And it's one of the reasons I generally don't take, like, concurrent competitive gaming as it exists in this day and age seriously at all. Because there's so, a, there's so much weight on the unit rather than, like, the game. Yeah, and that's B, true. Like, you can't just, like... I mean, you can nerf stuff or, like, fix, like buggy interactions by themselves. Like, StarCraft did that all the time, but the thing is, in a game like Magic, or any other card game, or in StarCraft, there's no, like, setup time required to, like, get your army ready to actually play. Like, if a card in Magic gets banned, or useless, or otherwise, you're like, eh, whatever, I swap it out, maybe I'll pay more to win, and buy another card, and add that to my sleeve, but that's that. But in 40k, as mentioned, there's the assembly, there's the painting, there's the making sure you have the proper army carry case for them. Because huh. you don't want to like just like take bring all your stuff your army in a shopping bag when you're playing in tournaments for obvious <laughs> reasons. Yeah, I guess I didn't think of that, but that's true. But it's like you can't really have like the same I mean, you can't like really make sweeping super changes like, oh, suddenly this unit literally doesn't have a purpose. Yeah, there was a, all those considerations, you know, drive me crazy. There was a, there was a time many years ago when I tried to design my own skirmish game and, uh, it was going to be grid based and have sort of this, um, draftable units in there and have, you know, the composition be up to the, 
the same units on both sides, but you could have different combinations of them and that kind of thing. And I wasn't, I wasn't even doing research into what existing war games there were at the time. It was just purely me working in in a vacuum, having loved, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics and, uh, and Final Fantasy Tactics is a good one. Tactics Ogre too. Oh, Jagged Alliance. Jagged Alliance, I played Did later, play but I, I loved that. I played that. At, all classic games. I mean, right. But anyway, so like... what I was doing when I was designing this was, uh, you know, immediately running into problems like the fact that I didn't actually have any terrain and I wasn't prepared to actually buy miniatures and construct little houses and make these adorable sets and things like that. And I, I figured out a roundabout way to get little uh, cardboard standy models for the the units and stuff and i put in the work to make it playable as a prototype kind of thing but it was just sort of a it was like on the heels of that i i looked into the different actual war games and i really just fell in love with the idea that the real depth and and like love that people poured into the models and painting them constructing them and these sets that they just look so gorgeous when you look at the table and it all looks like Every single part of it, when you see it on the table, looks like it was made with the utmost care and love. And then this strong contrast that popped out to me of this sort of reductionist, min-maxing abuse of rules and this sort of betrayal of all the fluff and the idea of what the units should be and what the the whole hobby should be about is this passionate, you know, hobby in the truest sense of the word. It's an expensive hobby. Like, I think that... If I mean, and I think that's another topic in its own right. Like that's one of the things that actually kept me away from War Machine and Infinity, is the fact that like their model line, their mini lines themselves are already more, less posable. They're more monoposed. There's like less you know kit bashing, less conversion, less you know customization, less of a factor that one D four chain calls your dudes. Right. Well, like, and, and but that was sort of the the weird juxtaposition for me, and it felt like a a weird dissonance and a disappointment for me was that you did have it felt like the company and the tradition was all about making it your own and having this personal touch, but then the way that people actually play it in reality is not as sort of this friendly, you know, match between two guys who are passionate about this hobby of simulating a war, but. Oh no, I actually, you read the rules wrong. I can screw you over now. And, you know, this thing is imbalanced. So I'm just going to abuse it and I'm chasing the meta. That kind of to me is like, I don't know. Does that not seem like some sort of contradiction to you? Well, I think as mentioned, Games Workshop has mimetically said many times that they're a model company first and foremost. They've recently changed their line to say that they're like a hobby company, which can enclose a lot of different things, which I do consider as an improvement. But they need to ultimately con- come to the conclusion that they're both a gaming and a and a miniatures company, and they're the intersection of both. Like you can have a beautiful game with crap rules, a crappy game with good rules, but a game that has both is what will ultimately win over everything else. Yeah, and but that the culture around it is is so uh, perplexing to me because you have the the fluff that they come up with and the novels and the the rule books themselves, every single fucking like pistol has its own history to it and like <laughs> I know. I love it's reading like... all of that stuff and, and you know, I have family that 
you know, we when there's new rules that come out, a new fluff that comes out, we just read this stuff with no intention of ever buying it just because it's so cool how they set up this universe. They're one of the best at, like, world building as far as I'm concerned. I know people who are obsessive about it will nitpick and come up with all these lists of problems, but I consider that to be a a symptom of having such a good world that people care enough to nitpick. Um, I mean, it's like the same way that people, like, nitpick little details like, wait, would IG-88 have really taken control of the second Death Star? Yeah, exactly. Like, if once you're reading it into it on that level, you're already hooked and they've already done their job beyond what was needed of them, or, you know? Or, like, this alliance in Game of Thrones is stupid. Or, like, Draco would have really ended up with Hermione in the end. He just didn't realize it. Or <laughs> people go all hateful, but then they realize they are, like, sucked in. No, yeah, I saw the same I mean, thing with, like, uh, uh, people who are addicted to, like, World of Warcraft or something, and then... They're like bitching about it nonstop, and it's like, well, you've been paying like however much a month for it for years, and you're still complaining about it. Obviously, you don't hate it that much if you're still subscribed, you know. I know. It's called Scub. Every fan base will have like its own internal blockization. And the thing is, like in a lot of ways, GW has had like even the Games Workshop company culture in a lot of ways looks like it's at odds with itself. Like the hobby team versus the rules team versus the legal team. Yeah. Huh. Um, Different players will, and different fans will interpret like different aspects of them having different relevance. I mean, if you look at like what happened with the release of Eighth Edition and Fourth Ed- and Forge World, Forge World being like the division within Games Workshop that creates like specialty mail order, mail only orders, as well as the Horus Heresy line, and around the same time that. 8th edition 40k came out was when Alan Bly, like the lead writer for Horus Heresy, was like dealing with terminal cancer. And at the same, around the same time that he, that he passed away, may he rest in peace, was the same time that the main games workshop rule writing team approached the Forge World team and said, Oh, by the way, we're making 8th edition and we've completely changed the rules. Here you have a few weeks to like get everything like, you know, adapted to it. And they were like completely caught like, unprepared and it showed in like the their index armor series which had a striking number of editing you know like goofs and rule goofs and which i haven't actually gotten to yet like come you know like discussing but wait so those that's where those rules came from that you were pointing out that were so ridiculous no those ones were from the main rules team the ones that (laughs) did in theory design the rules oh okay (laughs) but like forge roll has some of them, like, perhaps the most notable example was there's this one flyer. It was, like, I think it was called the Tiger Shark. And it had this giant railgun that had a rule that said that it could only be fired if the model with it had the Titanic keyword. Like, it was so heavy, it was so big of a gun that any, that otherwise you could not fire it on the move because you had to, you know, like, set down, like, Terran Siege Tank, you know, like, plant your feet and all right, that. Right, right. The only problem is that, that this vehicle did not have the Titanic keyword, so could not fire it unless if unless it stood still. But it was also a flyer, an airborne vehicle, that meant it could never stand still. Uh-huh. So it was like paying premium for this big freaking like artillery cannon that it was, by rules, never allowed to actually use. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that sounds rushed. That sounds like it's worse than your average uh, technical side case. That's a pretty straightforward mistake. Exactly. Like, but there is that, but the fact that that sort of thing happens, 
shows like what happens when you have like a corporate structure that intention like silos members from its own team. I mean, I've experienced this in the past in like I work as a software developer in real life and like there's like the whole working with like the business team, working with you know, versus the end users or the you know, QA guys. Yeah. Versus like the people up top. And if Games Workshop is a publicly traded company, which they are, then I'm, it's really safe to come to the conclusion that they have to deal with that same level of bureaucracy, red tape, and information hiding. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Whereas I'm guessing it started as a much more tight-knit group of people who are just sort of crazy about this hobby exactly. and this project that they wanted to start, and then everything would be more coherent and thought through and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Like, they were bought out, like, in the... I forget when they were actually bought out. I don't remember. I remember reading it in their history, like, but they were ultimately bought out. They did eventually become a publicly traded company. They continued to get larger and larger. Their, you know, legal team also got larger and larger. And around, I think it was, I'm trying to remember whether it was 2010 or 2011, there was this really large legal case known as Chapter House Studios. So what happened was in fifth edition, Games Workshop would release new codexes, new army books, but certain units, they would like, were not necessarily released on time. Like with, you know, they were not like timed with the codex launch. Okay. And so you'd have to wait several months. People would like convert their own stuff to like fill in the gaps. Like for instance, Thunderwolf cavalry, which didn't actually have a model. People would like take chaos horsemen and like put space wolves on them. (laughs) Yeah. But then what happened was there was this case where this third-party studio called Chapter House started, you know, selling mycetic spores, turvagons, tyrannifexes, all the stuff that Games Workshop had, like, put copyrighted names and terms on, but forgot to put images for or models showing what they actually looked like. Oh. Leading to this legal idiosyncrasy where... Games Workshop had to actually pursue like lawsuits against Chapter House Studio or else they would lose access to their own IP. Oh, of course, because if you don't if you just trademark something but you don't actually have something that backs representing it up, what it actually is, then the guy who yeah. comes in and actually makes something that validates mm-hmm. that thing and wow, that's a really weird situation. Yeah. Anyway, I mean and what happened was, at first, there was sympathy for Games Workshop because, obviously, Chapter House was doing, like, this really shady thing. And then, But then the Games Workshop legal team managed to, like, destroy that sympathy by, like, going off weird tangents, like, trying to copyright the phrase Space Marine. Oh, I remember Despite the that. fact that... <laughs> to which the chapters... I mean, and the thing is, Space Marine is, like, a public domain name. It would... Nintendo dealt with, like, a similar issue in the 80s with Donkey Kong. Like, Universal tried to sue them, saying that Donkey Kong infringed on their King Kong trade copyright. Yeah. But the problem was that Universal had, in a previous lawsuit, defend- been called as a witness to confirm that King Kong was in the public domain. Yeah. That, but, the, you know. The way that these legal, you know, teams that... They end up having this weird influence over the creative process of these companies that fans don't want to have to think about the legal bullshit that's going on. But it ends up interfering even in all aspects of the company just because they have to try to protect their IP. And and then what they've said in the past becomes suddenly relevant again in weird ways and stuff like that. And it, like, as it mentions, like, stifles both the game and the creative process. So if you look at, like, 
8th edition as an example. Although this happened in earlier editions as well, what would happen, first they renamed Imperial Guard to Astra Militarum, you know, Space Force or something with copyrightable Canis Latinicus. Yeah, everything becomes Latin suddenly. Latin something or other. Well, except for Dark Eldar, which they renamed because, you know, Eldar is Cinder and Elf. They don't want the Tolkien and State involved. So then the Dark Eldar were renamed Drew Carey. <laughs> I'm not making this up. That's actually D-R-U. I think it's supposed to be Drew Carey or so, but everyone started calling it Drew Carey. I never saw it that way, but I do see how people would uh, start pronouncing it accordingly in these to prove the point of how stupid it is to rename them like that in an arbitrary way. I mean, there's a term for it. Like, on the if you look on the Transformers wiki, it's called blastification. It's what happens when you inherit a property that has a lot of names that you cannot trademark, and to protect your trademark, you rename them to stuff that doesn't exactly make sense, but is copyrightable. For example, the Decepticon Soundwave becomes Sound Blast. Oh wow. Yep. Yep. Man, these are the kind of problems you're gonna have to deal with once your your uh war stack becomes, you know, a mega hit and you become the owner of a publicly traded company. I don't know how you're gonna deal with that. <laughs> I <laughs> No, I think realistically, for now, I just need to finish like working on finalizing stats and dice rolls, deciding on like how many strategy points should an army have on a turn by turn basis. There are other things I do want to add to the system as well, including, like, I want characters to have, like, hero points in theory. Hero points would be, like, similar to 40k command points, except, you know, in terms of, like, the activating special powers and stuff, but they can also be spent by the hero as substitute command strategy points for that hero in that hero's unit alone. Hmm. So. Yeah. Which I think creates an interesting, which I think would actually create an interesting dynamic. It's like, do you use your heroes as like sub commanders to like allow for like tactical decisions on the battlefield? Or do you like keep them around like, you know, as to like influence the tide of battle in terms of like, you know, acts of, you know, of fortune basically? Well, yeah. And then they can also use it to personally show off what they can do. And so they can serve as the commander sort of role or the the super unit. Right? Hero. Exactly. And I think, like, that actually would, you know, going back to what you said about, like, faction design, that would allow me to, like, do, like, three fundamental types of armies. You would have your elite armies. Like, when I mean by elite, like, your super well-disciplined armies that have a high base number of strategy. Think, like, a Roman legion, for example where everything is, is like, well-drilled and able to act in, like, accordance with one. Right, it's a regimented thing where there's a lot of built-in procedure as to how things should be, so you'd expect them to have uh, an answer for every situation sort of thing, so they'd naturally have a high degree Mm -hmm. of strategy. It's like, retire, it's like, retire the first wave, bring in, like, the reason, you know, bring in the triarii. When this unit is retreating, send in the equitis, the work. And then... That's the first type of army. The second type of army would be one with a lower strategy point base, but a higher number of hero points. Think more like the 300 Spartans, think like the 300 Spartans or like Goliath and the Philistines, Warriors of Chaos. You know, they're less coordinated and less like regimented as a whole, but they're all like about individual prowess and like individual warbands competing for glory. 
Right. And then, and then the third type of army would be one that has a weak number of command, of strategy points and a weak number of hero points, but has like a chain of officers that could like, would provide like rebates or discounts for like performing in specific manners while, you know, being able to like in, so think more like the Persians from 300 or, or like the Red Army or any other type of authoritarian army where the individual troops are poor tra- poorly trained, poorly disciplined, etc., but are kept in check by their higher ups. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds so, great. I mean, I would absolutely, uh, explore as many as you can the contrast you could create with that system and i think there were like a few other ideas i had like floating in the back of my head like i've contemplated like if i'm creating like if i'm going to actually create my own system rather than just like here's how you plug in generic armies into generic settings then i do want to like create like a legitimate fair folk army a legitimate the sid and the and those dandels and they would be the faction that with the actual turn structure. Oh, so, yeah. as an ex- example, if you have, you could have fetches as a unit, like the skin changers, the types that like assume the identity of other units. And the way they would work is if a fetch unit fakes out with another unit, both units switch positions. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that sort of thing. Everything. Or you'd have units like the Dullahan, you know, like the headless horsemen, whom Whenever enemy units spend strategy points, they regain hero points, which they use for like their aura of death, you know, for their death ride. Uh huh. Yeah, that sounds you like know. a classic wargaming twist on something. Once you're familiar with the core mechanics, now here comes this guy and he turns it on its head the so Confucian that suddenly food. your strength becomes your weakness, that kind of thing. Exactly. You know, and of course, I think it makes sense for the fearful Sid Els fairies types to be your blue control deck, you know, screwing up with the turn order type. I don't know anything about magic, so I don't get the reference there, but I, I do okay. know that uh, magic is known for having sort of these curveball decks that can just suddenly reverse your expectations. Yeah, it's like, when I mean by blue, as in like interrupting or distorting, like, when they think when they say white, they usually mean like healing and defensive. They, when they mean red, that means usually direct damage. Aggro green is usually summons, okay, and so on and so forth. And blue is basically we're going to turn this game of football into a game of hockey, <laughs> right? Just trickery and sort of <laughs> this sort of meta uh, warfare that's deception. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that sounds great. I I mean I've seen you on GDG talking mostly about other games and stuff like that. But um, honestly, there's got to be guys that would want to help you. Well, no, you ha- you have talked about the theme of it too in different factions and stuff. I remember you talking about that on there, uh, sort of this, you know, pseudo-Roman uh, era where you have these different factions and being torn about introducing Magitech versus different sort of things you could uh, in- inject right into that old setting. And It's like, what if Heroes Aeola Pile actually worked? What if the Helopolis of Rhodes actually was able to take Rhodes and wasn't melted down into the Colossus? What if Talos of Syracuse was actually like, was actually a Titan Automata? Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to see what happens with your project because now I understand it even more than I, I did before. And, uh, it's the kind of thing that 
I have to be a cheerleader for because there's it's it's a very hard road to try to design something like that. I mean, designing an RPG is hard enough, and it's a lot of philosophy and a lot of game design philosophy and abstraction. But to I'm curious how much like we, we mentioned before the difference between RPGs and war games, but how much do you think the the different approaches in design philosophy and how hard it is to design one versus the other. Um, and if you're into, you know, tabletop RPGs, um, how would you say designing one versus the other? What what strengths do you have to have? Well, I think with an RPG, like the since it's you don't like have a specific win condition, you can tailor it towards a certain degree of adaptability versus you know specificity. Like for for example, on one hand, Steve Jackson games makes GURPS, which Mematically can sometimes mean generally unplayable role-playing system or generic universal role-playing system. <laughs> I mean, your mileage may vary, but it's a huge simulationist game with a lot of splats and a lot of books that actually make good, make good world-building material. Yeah. On the other hand, they also make Cobalt's Ain't My Baby, which is very light, rules light, very munchkinish, and very much based on rule of funny. Yeah. Whereas... You don't really have that sort of luxury when it comes to making a war game. You can't, like, make it... I mean, look at what happened, for example, with Age of Sigmar when it first launched. People were pissed because, A, the game didn't have point values. B, units had, like, all sorts of fourth-wall-breaking rules, like add plus one to your die roll if you whisper to your miniature. Add another plus one if it whispers back. You're kidding, right? I'm not kidding. Like, they had these sorts of things. It's like, you're, you are an elf and you're snooty. Add plus one to your role if you can, like, verbally insult your opponent and get a reaction out of them. Is that why people make Age of Sigmar into a whole meme? Because I keep yep. wondering why, why people, That's you know... where it came from. Like, they got rid of that when they launched the General's Handbook in 2016 for obvious, for obvious reasons. That sort of stuff, like, destroys the game. Oh yeah, my personal favorite though, and I think maybe the most pure example of pay to win in a game ever, was this, one of the characters had a rule called everyone has their price. It was like you could like choose this one specific ability or debuff to use on your opponent, provided you bribed your opponent out of the game, and they came to an agreement. Like, this, this, that's <laughs> fucking retarded. It is! It's... I've just, like, I've just single-handedly lost a percent of respect for Games Workshop. I mean, I didn't know that they did that. Yeah. Like, I once spoke with a fan who thinks it was a conspiracy that the rules were written so badly in order to get the previous CEO ousted. But that's like delving into conspiracy land. <laughs> well, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I have to take it seriously because I don't see any other way that those would actually make it in there. I mean, it's just, as far as the culture of the hobby, that just sounds like suicide. Yeah, and there's a reason that, especially, com I mean, and there's a reason that, like, when Warhammer Fantasy disappeared, that a lot of players, like, create either went to Kings of War, or ended up, like, collaborating on the Ninth Age, or sticking with the previous edition of Warhammer Fantasy, and there's even the forum Eighth Edition for Life, like... And then, of course, you have the old Hammer community. You have people playing, making their own versions of Warhammer Fantasy. Like, there's Matthias Ellison, the guy who made the Warhammer's Armies project. Huh. And there's Warhammer Fantasy 8.5. The point is, 
the fact that Age of Sigmar had such a janky launch did basically blew up the fantasy community. And I can see a lot why of, now. Yeah. It didn't make any I sense mean, to me before, but now I understand it totally. Imagine having your, like, a setting that had, like, 30-something years of lore and, you know, built up and all these dramatic conflicts and plots killed off with extreme prejudice. Like, imagine if George R. R. Martin said, and then an orbital laser blew up Westeros. The end. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost unfathomable. It's kind of... Yeah, I'm myself and lost for words. Man, I, you know what? And then... Well, I mean, you don't even have to get into why that's stupid. I mean, that's just so self-evidently stupid. But especially when you consider, like, how much does it cost to build one of these armies, like, in real dollars, buying the models and the paints and all that stuff? Like, we're talking about thousands of dollars, right? Nah. Hundreds, maybe. Thousands? Eh, I think some people can get carried away. Okay, so hundreds of dollars is, is a pretty normal figure for what people pay once they have for a total army of a certain point value. But like, yeah. And then for the whole thing to just basically get nuked and go, well, nope. Bye. Or like, or just what did they expect? People just wouldn't take it that seriously until the codexes or the rules came out. Like, no, they're going to get invested immediately. I, yeah. uh, I, I also, the, we're, I, I want to talk about your game, but you're an interesting guy to talk to for just general conversation on this topic and i don't know how many times i'm going to have somebody else who knows what they're talking about as much as you so i'm just going to go ahead and ask what what you think about the eighth edition uh way they're handling trying to give people what they want is how i really see them approaching it because i like following the news on eighth edition now and what they're trying to do and it sounds to me like they're just like oh this is the thing that that you've been asking about for a long time we're just going to give it to you like the sisters of battle or whatever it's just like you know, I mean, I mean, I really appreciate that part. I do appreciate that they're actually like trying now, or at least have an op- a more open line of communication. Well, but, I would like to me, it feels like they're acting like a publicly traded company now. They're acting like we have investors, we have people who want to make a return investment. So why are we not, you know, giving people what they want and capitalizing on the huge level of demand there is for different things? I mean, I think that's ultimately a good thing. I know there's the whole saying you can't please everyone and that the 40k fan base is, I think, strongly opinionated is a good way of putting it. They're crazy but people. I do think, oh, of course. I mean, but I think ultimately they just need stronger technical writers first and foremost. I mean, the fact that they're, they release FAQs that end up like becoming mimetically bad and I can post those, I mean, I can post those on the GDG in general. Or maybe we should like split this into like different topics because I didn't really get to talk as I ended up getting into so many tangents. I feel like we were just this is talk- a podcast. This is a session of just tangents, and we did talk about your mechanics and your system somewhat there. But I know it was <laughs> there's so much fun stuff it's to talk. So about. much fun. No, I mean the bloopers that you've posted on GDG, and I I, I see you you also posted on a place like Reddit where they suddenly vote you down like crazy uh i know like i don't know what the i find it hilarious everyone on gdg i think found it hilarious and uh, you could have a whole you know list of those compile them yeah i have compiled them on 1d4chan i can actually send the link over that's great i'll I'll put that in the description of the podcast as well then because it's now like some other people have contributed to it as well but 
I think one of my personal favorites is from the fact that there's the one of the biggest things people have been talking about is, over the last two months is the big FAQ, like the March FAQ. Like that was supposed to like deal with a lot of balance changes and rules inconsistencies. Yeah, I and read then, that and I as somebody who knows shit all about the actual technical workings of the game, I was like, Oh cool, look at these guys. They're they're trying to stay on top of it. They're not gonna just wait, you know, a year to address an issue. They're gonna try to get to it sooner. And then I think I posted I mean, which, a link to it on the on the channel and you were basically like, Yeah, no, that's it's actually not that good. I mean, I appreciate it, but like some of the rulings themselves didn't actually quite make sense. And I think one of my personal favorite ones, actually in bringing this one up, is because it's such an example of, oh yeah, there's a term in wargaming called raw versus ray. Rules as written versus rules as intended. Yes. And bringing up the whole technical part of it, although raw itself in theory is non-ambiguous, ray itself can be very, very ambiguous. So there's this one rule in the Tau Codex called Focused Fire. It's this, you know, special ability that you can spend command points on. I have a unit. That unit shoots at an enemy unit. That u- enemy unit fails an armor save. I pass Focus Fire. From now on, any units I have that target that unit get a plus one to wound, which, I mean, it makes sense. You're focusing down one unit, right? Right. The problem is that a unit can target multiple units, so... And the way the ability is worded is unit that unit fails a save. My second unit targets that unit, two and five other units, and gets plus one to wound all of those units. <laughs> you know, very focused. Yeah, exactly. The exact opposite of focus. And yet this that slight <laughs> ambiguity where it's obvious what they intended, well, but or I guess it's to it's, me it's kind the of promise obvious. It's what, not- the problem is it's not ambiguous. The rules as written are unambiguous. A unit that targets, emphasis on targets, because the shooting phase sequence has like a very explicit order. You select a unit to shoot, you select, you target units with it, allocate weapons, then resolve attacks. So step, <laughs> unambiguously, you're targeting unambiguously, that means you're getting plus one to wound everything. <laughs> you know, and so, I think on the on a previous what, podcast with somebody else, we actually mentioned your level of of obsession with, uh, or I, maybe warring. it's not obsession. Maybe it doesn't take any obsession at all to notice these things for you. But you know, to actually articulate exactly why it's wrong and be able to put it in the context, it's 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 amusing for somebody who doesn't really care about the technical rules. I would be the kind of guy who would say, you know, sits back in the peanut gallery and has a good laugh. I have a good laugh, but also I just wouldn't play with somebody if they wanted to abuse a rule like that. I'd just be like, ah, well, you know, I don't care well, how it's written. I know that that's not how it's supposed to be played. And and I, then agree. I, would... I agree, too. I mean, in theory, but then the question is, like, once you have, like, a ruling like that, anything else can theoretically become suspect, and you start to intentionally question, what did the rules writers really mean when they wrote this rule? <laughs> No, the rules say this, but they re- what they really meant was the opposite. See now, and then it's bringing it back to like this RPG design, which is a lot more abstract. There's there is the GM. There's the guy who interprets all rules at the table. And, GM Fiat. Right, and you ha- and I'm wondering from your point of view, um, 
what kind of advice or insight you could give to people who are trying to make an RPG, which is mostly people on GDGs are working on RPGs. Do you have any sort of like insight into like tips on how to write stuff in a technical way that they don't have to, they can try to reduce the amount of GM fiat? I would probably say there's several articles I can link at the end of this podcast dealing with ambiguities in English language. For example, that old saying, I found you with my wife, or I found you with my flashlight. Did I A, find you with my wife, we both greet you, or B, I found you with my wife, get away from my wife. Right. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know? that is, there's that, and then there's, um, yeah, the ambiguities of the language itself, but I know that there's there's people who just want to appeal to common sense, and I'm thinking, you were talking about... The only, uh, problem, is, the only problem is that there are a lot of cases in 40k where the rulings have also been in contradiction to common sense. Stuff like, due to the system using a system where d6 rolls, modifiers to d6 rolls actually change the number. So as an example, plasma weapons that are overcharged explode on a roll of one. Not a natural roll of one, but like a modified roll of one. And when they explode, the model carrying them dies. Now, the issue is this means that if you're shooting at aircraft, if you're shooting at models in camo, if you're shooting at nighttime, then your plasma rifle's more likely to blow up. Uh-huh. And Games Workshop has ruled that's actually how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. oh, that changes things. So then the whole appeal to argumentum ad common sensium doesn't quite actually work at that point. Now, you, you're like, you said you do software design, so now I'm, I'm wondering... Because from the little bit that I've tried to learn programming is I once dreamed of being a video game designer when I was a kid and tried to get into programming and realized it was completely hopeless for me. One of the things that I did pick up was the importance on terminology and proper definitions. You know, Well, actually, think of it this way. Come to think of it, I have the best piece of advice. If you were designing your own RPG, imagine that you have access to the D&D spell Wish. And you know how when you wish for, when you wish for something in D&D, like, you can only wish for a certain item up to a certain value or a certain ability. And after that point, it's no longer safe and the game master can, like, pervert the intent interpretation to be a literal interpretation. Right. Like, writing an RPG that doesn't require a GM fight is like making a wish so specifically and unambiguously worded that the genie cannot mess it up. Huh. Yeah. The that whole, is... I wish for, I hope I wish for a turkey sandwich that won't turn me into a turkey that doesn't have a zombie turkey in it that doesn't isn't poisoned that isn't etc 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 etc. That was actually a Treehouse of Simpsons episode, and then Homer Simpson makes the wish, and he eats a turkey. He's like, "Dry turkey, this is the worst wish ever." <laughs> right. So you basically have to keep in mind that there will be people who uh, misinterpret who misinterpret, and that that's sort of the not problem. even willfully. Not even willfully, but sometimes by accident. Like, another issue is what happens if you're going to have, like, different abilities that use the same ability. Make sure they're all worded the same. Do not mix fluff and crunch into the same sentence. Hmm. See, that's really but, hard for somebody like me because I absolutely adore, you know, the, know, the theoretical overlap of the crunch and the fluff. They should be working in perfect harmony. But, but the thing is, like, here's what makes it even weirder. It's like... And one thing I did respect about games, I do like how Games Workshop formats their rules. 
is they'll put like a paragraph or sentence in like italics and mm-hmm. that sentence is like your fluff text and then below that there's the crunch text. The only problem is that they'll keep fluff text in like the crunch text as well. So then you're like, is this actually crunch or is this fluff? As in like I can summon a demon with like demonic ritual. I can summon any demon with this ability by performing a demonic ritual. Does this A mean that I'm by using the demonic ritual ability, I can summon any demon? Or B, can I summon any de- demon that has the demonic ritual cat tag? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of comes back to the thing that I tried to say on GDG, which was, why would you write into the rules to use common sense when that's what people who have common sense will already do? The people, what you're writing the rules for are people who don't have common sense. Or might have common sense. Because yes. the issue is this is a sentence that could be interpreted two ways and both ways have our common sense rulings. Because by using this, by performing a demonic ritual is in the crunch text for the demonic ritual ability. Or go, like the common sense ruling would be, I have, I'm using demonic ritual to summon any demon. But the real ruling is demonic ritual doesn't mean that you can summon. That means you can be summoned by someone performing demonic ritual, not the ability. That demonic ritual is just fluff text with no meaning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you... And I guess so, uh, what I would tell people um, listening to this, if they're, you know, if they're really on the ropes and they want to get somebody who's good at technical, uh, spotting these technical errors, is just to bother you and to come to you and say, Juggler, Hello. how the hell do you break this system and then you can just make a hilarious blooper out of it and say how it could all be fucked up because <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I'm willing to offer my services for the low, low price of nothing. I think uh, you might actually get people to take you up on it. And I might be one of them because I'm, I'm first and foremost, a guy who wants to have cool ideas and cool fluff and the, the mechanics should feel right. But I have a horrible eye for picking up these, in these technicalities, technicalities, I know people who, in the past, when I've play tested things, they pick up on it immediately, and it's like it—it's so embarrassing to see somebody point out the uh, the rule that doesn't make sense, or even just two mechanics that seem to cancel each other out, or you know, just mm-hmm. these sorts of like. There's a reason. There's a reason that 40k has the meme most play tested edition. <laughs> because it was like it was hyped up, and then like on launch, there were all these issues that people came up with. Ultimately, people still said it was like an improvement because it it was easier to like actually play. Like you didn't have to like go through all these weird cases, you know, like super rule lookup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Overall, they streamlined it, but which the... is an improvement. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's any way to really teach somebody that sort of eye for technicality because I'm thinking of one of my brothers who seems to be able to break a system within 40 seconds no matter how well it's been you know vetted and and play tested he'll find a way to break it almost immediately and he's been able to do that since he was a little kid and I think I've been trying to learn how to do that and spot that my whole life and I can't so (laughs) I don't know I don't know where it comes from I think I think it helps to think visually on to like analyze sentences or paragraphs in a visual manner. I don't mean like to draw a picture of what this, it says it's doing, but to like break down 
clauses like or, and, all, any, and break down the order in which the sentences are happening, you know? Sort of like, like a flowchart or something. Or a Venn diagram, or a stack. Yeah. I know that also, like, you may versus you must, or you can versus you should, or something like that. Like, those are... Immediately after versus just after versus after. Right, exactly. As if. Yeah. Man, there's it's, it's such a nightmare to... Like, it's so easy and fun to come up with the ideas, and then and then to actually implement it on a technical level... <clears throat> Hang on a second. It's really why guys like you should be there vetting these ideas and making sure that, you know, the idea guys don't get lost in their own thoughts and they bring it back down to reality of how people actually use the, the rules and sometimes abuse the rules. And you got to be aware of, of where the balance point is there. But I know we are going to have you back on here. You're going to work more on your game and uh, we want to come back and see what you've done and the, and the challenges you've faced because, you know, judging by your mechanics and your system, you've got a really great setup. And now we just need all those ideas to come in and uh, mesh properly on a gameplay level and a story level. And uh, we got to go for now, but I look forward to that. And I'll be following you on GDG, looking forward to what you put out. And I'm sure uh, as one of the few guys who are working on war games on GDG, you're going to have a great opportunity to shine compared to everyone else competing in that RPG space. And for that reason, it's especially exciting to see you making progress. Yeah, I think that's... No, that sounds good. Okay. Anyway, uh, was, no, thank you for having me. Thanks for the interview. It was pretty insightful. I do think I might try the partial rebate on the... Or little details like that so see you on the chat okay thank you so there you have it magic juggler and war stack an innovative interesting surprisingly uh balanced sounding game written by somebody who certainly is conscious and very aware of the pitfalls that war games fall into and that's the kind of guy i like to see on gdg because it's not just the heartbreakers and the guys who who think they can just do everything by slapping some ideas together and saying you figure it out you know no this guy wants to solve the technical problems as well make sure that it's nice and solid so that when people play it they don't run into pitfalls and uh, that is the kind of personality the kind of person that needs to be in gdg I just want to say, if you're listening to this podcast, if you have your own game that you're designing, even if it's not an RPG, even if it's not a war game, if you're designing a card game or, you know, something else that's just a tabletop game, um, you can go ahead, contact me, get on GDG's Discord, and I'd love to interview you. I mean, I want, it's got to be a big family, you know, a big tent for people to, to be creative and cross-pollinate and inspire each other. And uh, I love all these guys. I love this community. And uh, you're welcome to come on the podcast and talk about what you're working on and give some insight because I'm not a war game kind of guy. But as you can see, you know, I love talking about it. I love picking the brain. So, uh, yeah, tune in next time. We'll have more for you and keep designing. Keep designing.